We are actually concluding a sermon that started last week. And if you're new here, we're going through the Gospel of John. We're trying to take one chapter at a time. And too many good points here in chapter 10 for one week. So we're talking about Jesus and the Good Shepherd. If you don't have your Bible with you, page 897 uh, in your pew Bible, it's helpful to just have that in front of you as we we read the passage together. And so I want to read the first um, 18 verses from John chapter 10. And then I'm going to read from John chapter 10, verse 27 as well. So let's stand together at the reading of God's word, beginning with John chapter 10, verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls out his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of the strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays, his, lays down his life for a sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. And then verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. You may be seated and let's take a moment to reflect on God's word. When you enter into John's gospel, it's all the good things are right on the surface. As someone said, the the cookies are on the bottom shelf. And so when you enter in, whether you're a a spiritual snorkeler and you're sort of on the top or you're a doctrinal deep sea diver, it really won't matter because there are beauties to behold at every level and things you can't see at the top that you can see at the bottom and things you can't you can see at the bottom and you can't see at the top. And so 
what we have in this particular passage is uh, Jesus talking uh, at both angles. And so we want to spend a few minutes just thinking about what he's saying on the surface. That's easy, easy access. Everyone here can understand what he's talking about and then spend a few minutes at the deep end. And then I want to leave us with a charge that will help propel us into next weekend's emphasis on mission. So let's begin in the place of easiest access. In this chapter, Jesus provides a a picture of reality, and we talked about it last week. It's a very simple sort of picture he's trying to put out there, and everyone can see it just from a simple reading. There's this story, and the story really contains three main characters. The characters are the sheep, the thieves and the robbers, and the good shepherd. And we talked about the the sheep and the thieves and the robbers last week, and so we want to talk about the, the good shepherd. But just to have a quick review, let's remember... Who is in each place? We are the sheep. And as we saw last week, that's not meant to be a compliment. Sheep are some of the dumbest animals on the planet. And so I could give you a number of examples. Some I gave you last week, but uh, another one I read this week, week is that the, the shepherds in the highland of the highlands of Scotland, um, they take their sheep to different places. And of course, it's in the highlands, so there are lots of rocky outcrops and mountainous terrain. And what a sheep will do was it'll be eating in a safe place and then it'll start smelling some lush grass somewhere else. And it'll walk over and on this ledge that sort of sticks out from this mountain face uh, is a ledge and some grass has grown up on this ledge. And it thinks, gosh, got to have that grass. And it's maybe 10 feet down. So the sheep will jump down to the ledge, have a good old time with the grass on the ledge. But there's a big problem. Sheep cannot climb. And so the sheep is stuck now on the ledge. And the sheep, after it eats everything and gets a little more hungry and a little more thirsty, and he can't get out of the situation that he's put himself in, he starts, man, man, you know, somebody come and save me. But but the shepherd knows he can't come to the sheep at that particular point. So he just watches the sheep. The sheep will stay in that spot because he knows if he comes down too early, the sheep is stupid enough to go over the ledge. So this is what the shepherd has to do. The shepherd has to wait until the sheep is so tired and so thirsty and so exhausted that it just has to lay down. And only when the sheep lays down will the shepherd go and get it. Because when the sheep is laying down, he won't propel himself off the edge. I mean, you can see yourself in that picture, can you not? Oh, this is so perfect. This would satisfy my needs, so I I jump down. And for a while it seems to satisfy, but the problem is I can't get back up. But if Jesus came to get me right now, no way. So he waits a lot of times until we're just totally exhausted. And then he says, okay, now, when you're totally exhausted, I can strap you to my back and I can climb with you back out to a safe place. So you and I are the stupid sheep in the story. Then, of course, there's the thieves and the robbers, the people who are coming to steal steal or kill or destroy 
uh, the sheep. The sheep have some value, but the thieves and robbers are just using the value for themselves. They're not using it for anything else. And Jesus, in this particular context, is talking or addressing the Pharisees. We talked about that. They have a, a veneer. They have the real wood on the outside. It, it looks like real wood, but then when you scrape underneath, it's really particle board. It's fake. It's going to fall apart. And so Jesus is looking at these Pharisees that he's been addressing throughout the book, but particularly in chapter 9, and he's saying, you're just a, a fake. You have this sense of legalism, of this is the way it's supposed to be, and, and you're 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 binding people with that and you're putting them on their backs and they can't possibly live up to it. And this legalism comes out in many different forms. But, of course, that's just one of the the cheap carnal carnival vendors trying to get our attention to spend our life on something that in the end proves to be worthless. Jesus could have picked out some other form, but the form he's addressing in chapter 10 is legalism. And we talked about that. So there there are stupid sheep who are easily tricked into following uh, this something that looks like the real thing, like the veneer. And then we find ourselves in really desperate situations. So we have to have a good shepherd. And so I want to take just a few minutes to look at the characteristics here of the good shepherd. Verse 14, I know my own. So Jesus comes, he's looking in this sheep fold. He says, I, I know those who are mine. I know them. I know them by name. They are mine. And notice he qualifies or he supplies an illustration in the remaining part of the verse of how deep his knowledge is. It's just like the father knows me and I know the father. So the way I know my sheep and my sheep know me is just the same way as I know God and God knows me. In other words, there's just complete transparency. There's nothing hidden. When Jesus says he knows you, there's not some sort of blind spot he has. He doesn't need to whip out the spiritual MRI and say, let me get that scan down. He says, no, I, I know that person. I know their name. I know all about them. There's, there's nothing hidden that I don't see. And one reason Jesus is called the good shepherd is that he keeps coming towards us despite knowing everything about you. My guess is if you were like me, if you thought somebody knew everything about you, every thought you had. If they really knew it, they wouldn't come for you anymore. If you knew every thought that I had, you wouldn't come back next Sunday. But the only reason you come back is because you know you're the same. We're mostly terrified of people knowing absolutely everything about us. So we cover ourselves with clothing or attitudes or actions or plaques or something that hides the things that people we don't want people to see. And Jesus says, I, I know you. I know everything about you and I keep coming toward you. Probably the best illustration, as we covered several weeks ago, is in John chapter 4. You remember Jesus meeting the woman at the well at high noon. And here this woman comes out at the, comes to the well. She's got a bad reputation. Jesus knows her bad reputation. And Jesus pulls that reputation out into the light. She's trying to hide it. And he says, hey, why don't we'll just further our theological discussion when you go get your, your, your husband. And she says, well, I don't have a husband. 
She's just trying to hide. Right? You don't have a husband. You've had five. And the one you're living with now isn't your husband. How would you like that conversation? You're trying to hide. You're ashamed of something. You've come out at a place where nobody else is coming because you don't want that person, anybody to know about you. You don't want to hear the talk in town about you. So you're trying to be by yourself. And the person, the one person you run into knows everything about you. And not only knows everything, he speaks it out loud. And so the woman has this unusual encounter with the eternal light that shines into her darkest corners. And what she discovers is that this man's knowledge of her is not as deep as this man's love for her. Jesus's knowledge of her is not as deep as his love for her. So he knows everything about her and underneath all that knowledge runs the love of Christ. And she encounters that. And then she goes back to her own hometown. And this is her evangelistic strategy. You might remember it if you were here. She goes back to her own hometown. Everybody knows her reputation for sure. And she says this to all the people. Hey, you remember me? Got the scarlet letter on, you know, me. Come meet a man who told me everything that I ever did. Would that be a good evangelistic strategy? Here, I'd like to meet, I'd like you to meet up with somebody who knows everything about you. You'd be like, uh, no, not interested. The only reason you'd be interested in meeting a person like that is if their knowledge of you, if the love of God under, underran their knowledge. That's the only reason you would ever want to know somebody like that is that their, their love was deeper than their knowledge. And this woman had discovered that this person knew everything about her, but Jesus still kept coming for her. And so she came back and said, hey, this is incredible. If he could love me, he could love any of you people because I'm the dumbest one in the group. And so come and meet this man and people come and meet Jesus and a whole town is transformed in this encounter in John chapter four. Second characteristic is not only does he know us, but he lays his life down for us. Verse 11. Jesus isn't like the hired hand. He's not the one who sees danger and says, okay, I'm out of here. It's frequently what we do. We meet somebody. Oh, gosh, no, I, I don't want I don't want to have anything to do with that. And you withdraw. Jesus says, no, I see it. And I'm I'm still coming. I, I see all the ugliness in a person. I see all of their sin. I, I see everything they're trying to hide. And I'm, I'm continuing to come. I'm continuing to have compassion. And that compassion is going to extend all the way to the cross. Now, 20 years ago, 18, 19 years ago, Nancy, my wife, is pregnant with my second child, Morgan. And she's got this one of these pregnancies where, you know, anything, any smell and you're, you know, you're not feeling good. So I'm feeding Zachary, who's about a year and a half. You know, everything you feed somebody that's a year and a half smells bad. I mean, it's just you open the jar and you're like, hey, this smells great, great, you know. And so I'm feeding them the, you know, squash casserole, the green bean stuff. And you're just like, no pregnant woman should smell that. 
So she's sitting at some distance. Well, I've got the little rubberized spoon, you know, shoveling it in, wiping most of it off his face and shoveling it back in. And about halfway through the meal, he just hit the reject button. So it's all over him. Well, it didn't smell good going in. It sure didn't smell good coming back out. Nancy's over in the corner going, oh, oh. And this is what she said. Paul, he's, he's frightened. Hold him. Oh, <laughs> uh, I'm like, processing, processing. Uh, uh <laughs> oh, grab him. He's crying. I'm like, so, so what does a dad do? I mean, I get the little sprayer out and I'm from 20 feet hosing him down. But you see, that's what happens is that's what we also think about God. We've thrown up all over ourselves and we try to hide it. But we think if anyone saw it, that the first thing they would say is, I got to hose this person off. And when I get them all hosed off, then I can embrace them. And so often that is our picture of the gospel is, well, I came to church and what I learned is here's how I need to hose myself off. And if I get rid of this thing, then God will embrace me, embrace me. That's not the gospel. That is not good news at all. That's terrible news. Why? You can't hose yourself off. You're stuck in this little chair. You're down on this ledge. Somebody has to descend and grab you in your current condition and bring you to a safe place. Then once you're in the safe place, it's possible for you then to begin to work on the things that need to be worked on. That's the gospel. We don't want to get those things confused And we know that Jesus knows everything about us and he has compassion for us. And he's not just coming towards us. He's actually laying down his life for us in the midst of this current condition. Paul says it very clearly in Romans 5. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So this this characteristic of God's compassion, God's coming towards us and not just coming towards us, but laying down his life for us. And a third characteristic is verse nine. I am the door. This this grace motivated, this thirst quenching, this all satisfying, abundant life that John talks about or Jesus talks about in John 10. It's available, but it's just available through one door. And that one door is Jesus Christ. There's, there's no other door. There's no other way. There's no other alternative. No matter how attractive the alternatives may appear. They all lead to death, and this one door leads to life. Now, this isn't the only place Jesus makes this comment. It's all it's embedded all the way through the gospel. Let me just point out a few of them. In John chapter one, verse 51, Nathanael comes to Jesus and Jesus says this to Nathanael. You will see angels ascending and descending on the son of man because the son of man is the only connection between heaven and earth. 
at Jacob back in Genesis tw- chapter 22. He saw a ladder and Jesus says, no, it wasn't just a ladder. I'm the ladder. I'm the way. The son of man is the connection between this earth and the next and, the, and heaven. John chapter two. I am the new temple. We can get rid of this physical temple because you don't need to come here anymore to get connected to God. You just need to come to me. John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. If you're not ingesting and digesting Jesus, then you're not going to live. John chapter 7, in the middle of this banquet, Jesus stands up and says, Is anyone thirsty? All these people have these goblets in front of them. And he's saying, you can't get satisfied by any of those things. There's only one thing that can satisfy your thirst, and that's me. John chapter 8 and 9, I'm the light of the world. If you do not see me, if you do not know me, then you're blind. John chapter 10, I am the door. John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is just one door. And that door is Jesus Christ. And the good news is He's come through that door for sinners, not saints. C.S. Lewis talks about this, and he does it so well in the Chronicles of Narnia. Between this conversation and this, the book called The Silver Chair, Aslan, the Christ figure, has a conversation with a human child named Jill. And this is her first encounter with Aslan. And she's running away from something, and she's very thirsty, and she comes to the stream and and the stream, the, the bubbling stream, the noise is driving her crazy. She's got to have a drink from the stream. But the problem is the lion, Aslan, he's sitting by the stream. And here's how Lewis depicts John chapter 10. Are you not thirsty? Aslan said. Oh, I'm dying of thirst, Jill said. Well, then drink. Uh, would you promise not to do anything to me? Said Jill. I make no promises. Well, then I dare not come and drink. Okay, then you're going to die of thirst. Jill says, I suppose I must go and look for another stream. And Aslan says, there is no other stream. There is no other way. There is no other door. And you may be here saying, I'm pounding on this door. If I could just get this door to open, then I would really have life. There is only one door that needs to open, and that's the door of salvation to Jesus Christ. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. You see, John chapter 10 is easily accessible. I'm not saying it doesn't have its places that you might have a disagreement, but it's not that complicated. We're not that smart. We're stupid. There are all kinds of competitors that want us. We have real value because thieves and robbers are coming. And Jesus understands our value because he has given us our value and he is coming instead and he is the good shepherd and the good shepherd is not just coming for his people. He's laying his life down for his people. That's about as simple as the gospel can be. The second piece is the deep water. Let me read verse 16 for you. 
I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. And then look at verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Because my father who has get, because my father has given them to me, and he is greater than all, and no one no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. The 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 this is the deep water here of John, and the deep water the theological term for what John is or Jesus is describing is called divine election. Here's how I'm processing these two different passages that I think are describing the same thing. I, I think that John chapter uh, John, 27 through 30 is describing sort of a top down. You start in the shallow end, you end in the deep end. In John, uh, in verse 16, I think it's a, a bottom up. You start at the deep end. And you go up and let me explain to you what I mean. Let's let's just look at these verses. Verse 27. Let's start with the top down approach, because I think this is a little easier to see. Look, just just let's just unpack how this happens. First, there's a calling. My sheep hear my voice because I'm calling out to them. There's a, a general call. Jesus is calling out to people and he's calling out their names and he's saying, hey, I know them. There's a complete transparency. I'm not caught off guard by them. I'm not waiting for them to do something. I already know them and I'm coming for them. And then it goes on. They will follow me. They're going to they're going to hear this calling. They're going to see this compassionate savior and they're going to say, I'm lost and I need to I need a way home. I've jumped down on the cliff and I need help and I'm going to follow this good shepherd. And when that happens, I give them eternal life. And then they are eternally secure. No one will snatch them out of my hand. That's pretty straightforward. I think almost all of us could understand that there's a calling. Jesus knows us. We follow him because we see him. He gives us eternal life and we are eternally secure. But notice then, here's where we get into the deep water, verse 29. What is this entire transaction based on? What's the bedrock of this salvation transaction? My father has given me the sheep. The reason I know this transaction is going to occur with these people is because God the father has them and he's giving them to me. You see that? Let me give some supporting verses. John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. John chapter 6, verse 65. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. John chapter 17, verse 9. Father, I pray for those you have given me, for they are yours. John chapter 18, verse 9. Father, I have not lost one of those you gave me. So when you read John's letter, God the Son and God the Father are having a discussion about your salvation, but their, their discussion is on this vertical plane. I see, God, I see what you're doing. You're handing me people. That's how it's happening vertically. 
When we think of it horizontally, I hear a voice, I respond, and, and Jesus responds as well. It's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, Praise be to the God and Father, for he chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. He predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Christ Jesus in accordance with his pleasure and will. Will He chose us in Christ before the creation of the, will, of, of the world. You and I think about the transaction of salvation usually from a, a horizontal perspective. And here Jesus is telling there's a vertical perspective on your salvation. And that vertical perspective helps you know you are eternally secure. There's a divine perspective going on. See, when you when you say I was saved when I was six or you were saved when you were 16 or you were saved when you're 56, that's fine. That's but that's not the beginning of your story. The beginning of your story goes way back. And the beginning of your story actually begins before the creation of the world. And so this bedrock of your eternal security is the fact that God the Father is doing something. If God the Father isn't doing something, there's nothing that that we can do on our own. Now, let's just look at verse 16 and you'll see it in reverse order. Verse 16, I have other sheep of this fold. We're starting now at the deep end. And Jesus is now saying, I have sheep of another fold. In other words, outside of the Jewish nation, I've got other people. And notice how he says it. I have them. Not, I'm going to, I want them. Wouldn't it be good if they come? He doesn't say that. He says, I have sheep of another fold. And when he says that, he's thinking about me. You can put your name in this text. I have Paul Phillips, and he's of another fold. I must bring him. There's no question how they'll be brought. Jesus is going to do the bringing. And there's no question how they're going to be brought. I'm going to call out to them. Do you see that? So I, I definitely have other sheep. How do I already have other sheep? How can Jesus in John chapter 10 say, I have Paul Phillips. He's in another fold. I must go get him. How can he possibly say that? The only way he can say it is if God the Father has them in his hand and says, I have them and I'm going to give them to you. And that transaction of salvation actually occurs before the creation of the world. This is deep water. How is he going? How are we going to hear his voice? He's saying, I, I have sheep. I must bring them. They are going to hear my voice. And and how is that that we hear his voice? It's happening right now. It happens when somebody comes to John chapter 10 and proclaims the gospel like I've done this morning. It would happen with you when you sit down with your friend and you go through the gospel and you reach John chapter 10. You could say, do you hear the calling? If anyone would come. You notice the language? 
you know how Jesus says that? He doesn't say, hey, just those frozen chosen, would you come? He doesn't say that. Anyone, would anyone come, you could come. You can come flooding through this door. And it can be right now. And when you come through that door, you're going to see Jesus. And He's saying, I know your name. I know everything about you. And I've had you on my mind from before the creation of the world. So you can be completely sure from this point on, no matter how messed up your life may get, you are eternally secure. Do not worry about your salvation. Work on your sanctification. And many of us are working on our salvation. And it means you don't know what salvation is. Salvation is a one-way working of God. And once that's happened, then you join together with God and His Holy Spirit to say, now I want to live for Christ. And because of that, I want to get rid of some of the things in my life. That's the gospel. And that's both shallow or surface and deep water. So it's up to you and I to be the voice now. Peter Cameron Scott was a person who left his fold and went to another fold. He understood John chapter 10 and he said, it's up to me to leave my fold in Scotland and Britain and to go to another fold. Peter Cameron Scott founded the African Inland Mission He was born in 1867 in Scotland. He was a gifted vocalist. And he had a strong attraction to being on stage. And one day when he was young, he was standing on the the opera house steps answering a casting call. And he had a real moment of crisis because he felt like he had this real attraction to the stage. And yet he felt like there was a calling on his life to move to other places and preach the gospel He was at a fork in a road, and so he decided to to jettison the spotlight of the entertainment world and go do missions. He decided to leave Scotland, the fold of the safe fold of Scotland, to preach the gospel in Africa. And he arrived in Africa, and on his first missionary trip, he was there not very long before he contracted malaria, and he had to come back home. Well, he got better, and, and it looked like the Lord was giving him favor. In fact, his brother was going to go with him this time, the next time back. So he takes his brother John with them, and they joyfully now together are going back to Africa. But the joy turned to sorrow because John got malaria never made it back home. He died in Africa. So Scott buried his brother by himself, and at the grave he rededicated his commitment to stay in this fold in Africa and preach the gospel. But he couldn't do it. He got malaria again and had to go back home. So he's back in London. He's terribly discouraged. You ever been at that point? God, I I jettisoned what I really, what my heart was desiring because I really felt like your call was bigger. And then I answer the call and I just, I I can't stay. So, well, okay, maybe it's good. I didn't see my brother's going to come, but now I'm burying my brother. So he goes back home. He visits Westminster Abbey. He stands at the tomb of another missionary named David Livingston. 
a longtime missionary to Africa himself, and on the tombstone he reads this word, Other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. So Peter Cameron Scott goes back, and he never comes back. He stays and he founds African Inland Missions, which has fruit in a size you couldn't possibly imagine. If people are going to hear the gospel, somebody has to leave the fold. You have to leave the fold of this safe place and you have to reach out to your neighborhood. You have to reach out to First Fruits or high school or a college or Mary C. Williams. And some of us, as we heard very well last night from Sarah Smith, that some of us are called to go outside of even our own country. And so next week we'll think about missions and you need to be thinking and praying about, well, how am I joining in on that aspect? How is it that God is calling me to go and proclaim the gospel? And my question is, are you really sure you know the gospel? Or have you bought into something that's just a fake veneer? Jesus knows everything about you, and he's still coming for you. And because of that certainty, you can go into other people's lives that are a wreck. Because the love of God has already come into your wrecked life. Let's pray. Lord, there's, uh, there's a lot to behold here in this chapter. It's simple enough for the, for the most uneducated person to pick up. And to pick up a great jewel that will last forever. Not just something simple, but the, the gospel. And then there's some mighty deep water here for the, the deepest doctrinal deep sea diver to imagine what was happening before time itself began between you and your father. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you that it's deeper than our minds can understand. Thank you for making it simple enough for us to grasp. Even a child could hold on to this truth. Lord, there are many people who live in the darkness. It's required of us to go and stand in dark places. To leave this fold and go home into a home, into a school, into a neighborhood or another country. As these people process your call on their lives, may you make their calling sure. May they hear your voice clearly today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.